Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, it's a new week. Um, it's a new year for those of you who are unaware. <laughs> uh, 2018 has kicked off. We are out of the starting blocks. Some people haven't gotten into the starting blocks. Never mind left the starting blocks. The gun has gone off and uh, the race has started as it were. And you should be, what's the day today? 14th? 16th? 14th? You should be 14 days nearer your goal. The goal you set on the 1st, you should be 14 days closer to it. Time waiteth for no man. And so the passage of time uh, demands for us an urgency uh, by, by which we use time. David said, teach me to number my days. So that, he said so that the reason why he wants God to help him number his days, he said so that I might apply my mind to wisdom. I might focus on how to live wisely in the time frame allotted to me. Live wisely in the time frame allotted to you. David said in Psalm 31 verse 15, All my times are in your hands. My seasons, every season of life is in the hands of the Lord. And we know that he orchestrates and he has in hand, in his hand, he has every era or phase that we go through in life. And no era or no season in life amidst the entirety of your life is wasted in God's economy, even if it's a trial, even if it's a negative. It's not wasted. Because in those seasons, God's, God teaches you valuable things that would never have been learned outside of the experience of that issue or that trial. Okay? Well, for us as sons of God, the entirety of our lives is significant. Um, and it's deemed so by God, who determines all things for us, all of, all, all of our lives and the events of our lives, the experiences of our lives, if we live circumspectly before the Lord, God can program and predetermine the course of events and even the negative events by God's determination. Like, the, for example, the, the uh, negative experiences of Joseph at the hands of his jealous brothers, everything is built systematically into making the man in terms of his character, that God wants him to hold as a strong undergirding factor in his rulership in Egypt. Okay, so everything counts. Tell someone everything counts. Right? Nothing is wasted. So never despise even the negative. We love the high points, but the low points sometimes we despise. Never despise even your low points. Um, by God's reckoning, those are critical for developing character in you, character sufficiently strong enough to, when you come into your ruling destiny, you have the metal to sustain the magnitude of the will of God for you at that stage. You know why I believe Solomon made a mess of things? He did not have the rigor of the testings that David had. David's, David's ascension to the throne was difficult, not so fraught with um, a man um, hounding him 
person of King Saul. And David was submitted to test after test after test after test, then the throne. Solomon seemingly is born and he's put onto the throne straight away. Right? No rigor of the test of character. But sometimes the magnitude of kingship and rulership that God wants to thrust upon you demands a certain, certain character strength. Character strength that could only be developed through difficult times, through serious testings of the Lord. So embrace your hardship. Your mindset must be this. This might be hard, but necessary. Everyone said hard, but necessary. Hard, but necessary. Because it's developing certain things within me. Again, because God knows in His wisdom, I need that to develop certain traits in me, to carry for me to have strong enough shoulders for my life, my mindset, my character, quality of my integrity, to be so strong, it must manage and undergird the magnitude of God's will for my life. Amen? God knows what He's up to with you. I want to encourage you. God knows what He's up to with you. Don't ever think that nothing, that things have escaped His control. Nothing ever escapes the, the, the orchestration and the hand of God and the handle of God upon things. Everything is no surprise to God. Do you think that your trial surprises God? That one day He wakes up and sees you in the middle of a problem. Oh, my child, I'm so sorry. Didn't know about that one. No, no it never ever is God's experience. He is always a step ahead. He knows what the future holds in His omniscience. He knows and He already makes provision before you get there. Right? The ram was caught in the thicket, I believe, of the mount that Abraham ascended. Remember, he, he was about to kill his, his lad, his, his son. And the Lord said to him, hold it, Abraham. Now I know what's in your heart. Scripture says, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. They say, I don't know how true this is. One commentary I read said, in that part of the country where he was, rams were not commonly known to traverse. So what was a ram doing there? God ensured that, you know, three days it took, not so I think it was three days, where God said to him, go to a land which I will show you, and there sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. And he, he got up early in the morning and he went, I think it was three days, I'm not sure exactly, I stand to be corrected, but the point is, he, he journeyed a long time. And then he said he saw the mountain. And he said to the, the young men, stay here, the lad and I will go up and, and worship. And when he eventually put Isaac, or Isaac laid his life down on the altar, he lifted up the knife. God said to him, stop Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, called his name twice. For now I know what's in your, now I know what's in your heart. The Bible says, and there was a ram caught, stuck in the thicket in the bush. Thorn bush, right? I believe, if my sanctified imagination is permissible, I believe when God commanded Abraham to go, he ensured that a ram lost its way somewhere and started coming up the other side of the mountain. As obedience was making its way up this side, provision was making its way up that side. And obedience always meets provision. Sometimes you obey God in a particular respect. This is hard. Killing my own boy, God, the thing you want me to do is going to be soul-wrenching. It's going it's to it's cut me up so deep inside. 
But as you obey, provision makes its way on the other side. And provision meets obedience. So I want to encourage you that my point is, Abraham's need at that point in time is no surprise to God, right? Was not, uh, God is not taken aback because God already ensured that this ram needs to be lost to meet the need of my son. God knows everything. You know, all the needs of 2018 have already been programmed. They're going to meet you where? At the point of your obedience. However difficult the process of your obedience the ascension was he went up a mountain. However difficult it is, I want to encourage you to obey because obedience waits you on the other side of the mountain. Amen. That's not my message. That was my greeting. These thoughts were just booming in my spirit. Amen. Well, greetings in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Everyone happy in the Lord? Hallelujah. Amen. I really want to encourage you to stay strong in the word of the Lord. You can be on a holiday but don't go on a holiday from God's Word. In fact, in the holiday, when people claim to have more time than they have, we're supposed to when they're working, because when people work, the common excuse I hear, I don't have time to read my Bible given the pressures of my work. Well, in a holiday, you have more time. So give more time to the reading and the study of, of God's Word. Amen. I want to continue now on, on sowing and reaping, financial sowing and reaping. This has been a, a theme that is really, really blown up in my own spirit. But I want to get into, of recent times, we've been talking about why is it that people sow and they don't reap? Or they sow financially and don't reap the harvest that they should. The commensurate harvest associated with the potential of the seed sown is not had. Up to this point, and I, I don't want to even risk rehearsing all the reasons that we've discussed up to this point. There are about seven or eight reasons that we've prosecuted and thoroughly examined from the scriptures why people sow but do not reap. Last week, we explored 2 Corinthians 9 where it says, When you give, give not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loveth a, a cheerful giver. For those of you who are not here, I trust that you listened to that message. It was a very important one. I thought it would be elementary point. You know, when I was even doing it in my notes, but as I meditated upon it in last week, I saw the seriousness of it. You see, you've got to put the cheer back into your giving because God loveth a cheerful giver because it's not that God just wants you to be happy when you give. He wants your giving to model His heart as a giver because when He gives, He doesn't give begrudgingly, or out of coercion, or in terms of reluctance, or pain, or sorrow. We looked at all the Greek words there. So, cheer or exhilaration, high-spiritedness, remember? Jovility, uh, ecstatic joy must be the condition of your heart every time you give. You, you will sow with the right attitude of exhilaration. Harvest comes to a seed that is sown in the right attitude. It's not about simply the seed sown. It's the heart attitude and condition that drives the sowing of the seed that ensures and guarantees the harvest associated with it, okay? So are you going to be happy when you give, yeah? Right? Don't give uh, the eklupte, the, the, the Greek, um, out of sorrow literally means you give out of pain. That shouldn't be 
should give out of sheer joy to model the quality of giving that God, your heavenly Father, has whenever He gives us. It says in the text, in the word, it is good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So God derives extreme pleasure when He, when he gives. I share the testimony of how that I bought tools and a toolbox for Matthew um, before we left Cape Town, after they were married, because he got a, a, now a house to manage, etc. So every husband must have a toolbox, you know, it goes, fix up this and that at home. So I was, I was in Builder's Warehouse, moving aisle by aisle, buying tools and screws and nails and everything I think he would need for manage a typical house for my son. I could not contain the joy that I felt. And as I was paying for it, God said to me, you feel this excited about blessing your son? Imagine how I feel about you when I have to give you things. The, the pleasure. Everyone say the pleasure of God. So God derives extreme pleasure. There's something I'm, I'm, I'm meditating upon recently. It's the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That joy must become your joy. Right? The, the, the pleasure aspect about serving God. One reason that I want to talk about today is critical. And it's taken from Proverbs 10 verse 5. The reason why many people sow and do not reap is because in the time when you should be harvesting, you are fast asleep. So you cannot sleep in a time of, of harvest. He who gathers in summer is a wise, so is a son who acts wisely. Other versions say is a wise son. If you're gathering in summer, you are a wise son. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. The NIV says, he who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. If you go back to the NASB, please note the text. Let's look at it. If you gather in summer or in harvest, the word summer here is harvest, is a son who acts wisely, but if you are sleeping in a time called harvest, you are a son who acts shamefully. The important lesson to learn from this text is do not sleep in harvest time. It's, it's, it's shameful for a son to sleep when he should be harvesting. So you've sown seed, harvest has come, but your disposition is not, um, your internal character, your life, your mental disposition, everything about you is not compliant with the particular season that God is wanting to bring to you, right? Now, in the Bible, in the Bible, there are, amongst many other things, at least five indications of sleep, at least five. If you interpret the Scriptures allegorically or symbolically, and whenever, for example, Old or New Testament suggests sleep, do not sleep, or he is sleeping. You, it could, there could be five various applications. Six, let's say six. One obvious one is death, right? Remember Lazarus was, Jesus said he's not dead, he is a, 
is asleep when they said, Lazarus, your friend is dead. Jesus says, no, he's not dead, he's, he's sleeping. Another one is works of the flesh, which I want to talk about today. A, a third one would be indifference. A fourth one would be laziness. A fifth one would be unawareness of the times. And a sixth one would be prayerlessness. So all of those things indicate sleep. I'll talk about one of them today and the others in the weeks to come. I want to talk about works of the flesh, carnality, sensuality, carnal indulgence in willful sin as an expression of sleep. So where the, where the, where the scripture says, your, your harvest is here, but you are asleep. If I say to you, sleep is indicative of carnal expressions or works of the flesh. If you, after having sown your seed, are willfully given over to unrepentant sin, and it, it vexes you, it besets you, you're willfully indulgent in it, don't think you're going to come to harvest, although you've sown seed. Okay? Now, I'm going to explain the theology of this because it's not so simple as, as one might think. But let's look at the text. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 verse 11. Quickly. Romans 13, 11 to 14. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 to 14. Okay? Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. It is very clear to me from this passage. It first says, awake out of your sleep. Do not be engaged in the unfruitful works of darkness. Then it mentions specific expressions of darkness. Like, for example, in verse 13, carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, even things like relational tensions between people, strife and jealousy, right? And, but it says, but instead of that, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not make provision or room for the, for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Many people don't want to do the works of the flesh, but you make provision. You got it, the text says, don't make pro. Don't give it latitude. Don't give it um, occasion. Right? Don't give it occasion to manifest within your life. Because if you do, it'll swallow you up. Right? Don't give it a foothold, in other words. Okay? So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh in regards to its, in regards to its lust. Now, I said to you that a shameful son sleeps in harvest, according to Proverbs. If you are a son, it's harvest time, you fast asleep. You're not going to reap anything. And I said to you, there are five indications of sleep. 
one of them of which works of the works of the flesh. So why is it that works of the flesh, like carnal indulgence in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, given over to the carnal cravings of your fleshly man, even things like you schismatic, you involved with extreme jealousy, envy, strife, and tension relationally with no inclination to resolve the matter. You're not intending on bringing resolution to it. Why is it that that disposition, you must say to me, but I've paid my tithes, I've sown my, I've sacrificed, I've engaged the sowing and reaping principle. Now my life and my seed got nothing to do with each other. Let what I sow and reap the harvest. I am saying to you, you've sown seed, your seed can come to harvest. You will never enter into it because your carnal state tells me you are fast asleep, not ready to engage and reap the rewards of what you have sown. Okay? Tell your neighbor, very serious. Very serious. Okay? Now, let me, let me further unpack this um, to us because I, I thought long and hard about this. I, in my preparation, I'm reading the text, studying the word, and say, God, I can see the correlation. But why? why? Why must we marry the two? And the Lord said this to me. It's because money has got a representational dynamic to it. Money represents you. When you give, you're never divorced from what you give. Your finances represent you. They are symptomatic of everything about you and about your, and about your life, or at least they, they should be. So, for example, I won't go to the text, but we've read this text over and over in the series. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, the Macedonian believers, they gave themselves... I remember uh, Paul says concerning them, they were deeply poor, deep poverty, but they gave how? They gave liberally to Paul and to God. He says to us and the Lord, right? So watch. Here's a poor church giving themselves, giving money and other practical things to the servants of God and to God himself, Okay. And then just, just look at the text, 2 Corinthians 8, round about verse 3, I think. Paul says, uh, verse 4, uh, the next verse. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the, by the will of God. Before they gave their money, they first gave themselves. So you never give your money until you are given. Okay, can we establish the fact? Repeat after me. Never give money. Now you might think you're supposed to encourage us to give. I'm telling you, don't give. Keep your money. Right? We don't need your money. You need your money. But I'm saying, don't give your money unless, unless you are first given in your heart. Right? Right? Amen? This, you see, the previous verses here said, they gave according to the ability, beyond the ability. They gave, but they, everyone say the word first. They first, I like this word, apostolic word. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. Given to the Lord, given to your leaders. Then give your finances. If you don't have this in place, don't give your finances, 
I'm telling you, finances have a representational dynamic. They represent something. Please, if we're going to grow financially, you've got to understand this dynamic. What you give is not clinical obedience to an external command of Scripture that perhaps you know. Now it must be, you must say this to yourself, when I'm giving my tithe, I'm giving me. When I give my offering, I'm giving me. This is symptomatic. It's representational. I'm not divorced from what I give. It, it therefore, uh, if, you, if you draw this out to its logical conclusion, he who doesn't give his money hasn't given himself. He who doesn't give, I can prove to you by examining the pattern of your giving, the degree to which your heart is given. Because the text says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be, heart be also. Um, my father in the Lord can vouch for my support of him, my submission to him, my support of the purposes of God locked up within his life and destiny by simply tracking the flow of my finances. But what I'm suggesting to you, never ever obey financial principles without heart involvement. So where the treasure is, the heart will be, the heart will be also. Now, in Luke 20 verse 22, you've got to track with me. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? They asked Jesus. Or not? Should we pay taxes to the Romans who are colonized Palestine at this time? 23. But he detected there their trickery and he said to them. Okay, they were, they were posing a trick question to Jesus. Do we, must we pay taxes? If you read the previous verses, uh, some of the gospel writers says they ask him a trick question in the hope of trapping him where they, whereby they might have occasion to arrest him. So everyone say trick question. Right? This is not, you know, you must be careful about some questions. Some questions are not honest searches after truth. Right? I get asked questions on Facebook all the time. Some I simply ignore. Why? It's not an inquiry for truth. It's usually sometimes an inquiry to trap or trick or to use your platform as a basis to air their views without an honest search for truth. And you've got to be very discerning. Don't respond to every question. But Jesus, you know, Jesus is a master question answer. answerer. <laughs> he, I just like, you know, uh, he's a cool dude, the Lord, eh? If you track him throughout the, 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 the Gospels, he just goes about his doing his father's business, lawyers, they pose trick questions. He's just with wisdom, you know, drops the answer, leaves them dumbfounded and carries on. Yeah? I want to be like that. I strive to be like that. So his answer to them is this. He said, show me a denarius. He didn't answer them. He says, bring a coin, a Roman coin. Denarius, a Roman coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Just put the King James with this text, with this verse. Um, whose image and inscription does the coin have? They answered Caesar's. Now, obviously, Caesar's head was embossed upon the coin and his inscription. The image and the inscription, two things. They said Caesar's. And so he answered, well then, render to, give to Caesar, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he also adds like a rider that flummoxed them. Right? 
You know what? They were expecting him to answer. No, it's not lawful. They expected every Jew bound by Roman oppression, let's pay least taxes as possible. He said, whose ever image is on the coin, that's the destination of that money. If his image is on there, give to him what is his. But they expected him to stop there, but he adds this. Oh, by the way, give to God the things that are. Give to God the things that are, are God's. Now, yeah, I believe the application is twofold. Firstly, question, are you made in God's image? Yes? Whose image do you carry? God's image. You are made in the likeness and the image of God. So to whom do you belong? You belong to the Lord. But secondly, I believe when you give, I wrote in my notes here, when you give a superior like Caesar, when you give to a superior or higher order like Caesar or God in this context, what you give must clearly have the nature or the image of the one to whom you are giving. When you give to a higher order, like in their context, the Jews to Caesar, or as Jesus says, human beings to God, what you give must bear the image and the likeness of the one to whom you are giving. Right? Whose image is on the coin? Come on. Whose image? Caesar's. Where must the coin go to? Caesar. Unless the coin has the image of Caesar, it cannot be given to Caesar. If you take that application and say, I've got finances to give to God in God's kingdom. Unless what you give bears the likeness and the image, the character of the one to whom the money is destined for. That money lacks power. But are you made in the image? So then that becomes reflective of you. Let me say it like this. Your image must be reflected in what you give as representative of the image of the one to whom you are giving. When that is in place, the seed, the money is seed, right? The seed takes on heightened potential. If you take that, that money, right? And you say this 100 rand note or this 200 rand note and the offering plate, God, I'm going I'm to give this to you. Or I'm eating something into the church bank account. This is yours, God. You must tell yourself this. This bears your image. This is expressive of me. I am made in your image, therefore, my image is reflected in this currency, which I hope God and I pray is thoroughly reflective of everything you are. So if your image characterizes my offering, I gladly give my offering to you. Do you know Elisha refused the offering of Naaman? Remember? Remember you wanted to pay him? And he refused the offering, okay? Because in the offering was not represented the image of God reflected in and through Naaman. Because Naaman still wanted to worship the Assyrian God when he went back to Assyria. He wasn't convinced that he will worship the God of the Jews, which is Yahweh. Although the God of the Jews healed his leprosy, wants to give a gift to the prophet. The prophet said, no, I cannot receive that because that is not reflective of the image of God in you that is showcasing what you're given to me. It is very, you know, this might be a moot point, 
It might be, you might think this elementary. It is very critical. I want to encourage us all, think twice before you give. Say to yourself or to your, your husband, is the image of God here? Is the nature of God? Is, is this offering reflective of everything God? God is. Otherwise, it loses, although it has seed capacity, it'll never come to harvest. Why? Watch, listen carefully. Now, what if the image of God in you is compromised? This is where I'm going to. What if the image of God in you is dented? For we have all sinned and fallen short of the, the glory of God. What if, now listen carefully, we all mess up, right? None of us, not one of us that mess up. I'm talking here about willful, ongoing, deliberate engagement in carnal sensuality, in carnal carnality that's opposed to the image and nature of God, but yet you are still obedient to the principle of sowing and reaping. That coin, that money, those notes, that EFT you do will never be reflective of the image of Him because the image of Him in you has been compromised and so you're giving what Malachi calls a deficient offering. They can never ever come to harvest because you are asleep by your carnality. Okay? You are asleep by your carnality. Now, I want to use a case study to prove this point. Look at Cain. Genesis chapter 3, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Look at Cain. And I, I want to demonstrate this. Watch, and you're going to see how this plays itself out. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought in an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also bought, brought the first lings, a first fruit offering of his flocks and of their fat and their portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Everyone say Abel and his offering. Did the Lord regard the offering first? No. Who did the Lord regard first? Abel. The man is accepted first, then his offering. Come on, say it with me. Say, Abel and his offering. It's not, the text doesn't say, and the Lord accepted the offering of Abel and the man too. The offering is accepted because the man is accepted. Right? I taught this to you a while ago. Your offerings don't validate you. You validate your offerings. You are not accepted because your offerings are. Your offerings are accepted because you are accepted. Okay? You give power to the thing. But if you are deficient, try sow the seed. If the seed doesn't bear your image, which should be the image of God reflected on your seed, guess what? God might reject it or it might not come to full harvest or, or blossoming. Right? But Abel's is accepted. Watch the next verse. But for Cain and his offering. Notice again. Notice the order of the text. Abel and his offering. And now, Cain and his offering. It's the man, then what he offered. Cain and his offering, the Lord, the word regard here means esteem. Had no, uh, when, when God saw Cain giving um, the fruit of the ground to him, God rejected it. I know theologians have all sorts of reasons why this is so. I think the main reason 
is because the offering was not thoroughly reflective of the image of God that should be in the man. Because the image of God in Cain was compromised. And the book of Jude, there's one verse in the book of Jude that says, and do not go the way of Cain. We are exhorted in the scriptures not to follow the way of, of Cain. Don't go there. So what was this man's problem? Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. And Cain, Cain became very angry. Right? Whenever the Lord corrects, you should not be angry. You should be humble and say, I've messed up. Let me just, let me be honest with all of you. If a principle of God is not working in your life, there's nothing wrong with the principle or God. Start to look inwardly. Because God's word will never fail. God's character is immutable. He will never change. And He's thoroughly reliable. Okay? So whenever I find in my own life, uh, something not working out, I always do. Maybe there's a problem. Yeah, maybe I'm. The problem is, yeah. It's a good place to start with. Amen. Amen. And so Cain and his offering, God had no regard. He becomes angry and he, he gets sad. His countenance, <gasps> my brother's offering and him is being accepted. Me and my offerings, the Lord has no regard. He rejects it. The next verse gives us a clue. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Right? And why are you sad? Why is your countenance fallen? Watch. If you do well, will your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, what, watch what God says to him. Sin is crouching at your, at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, please watch here. This is very serious. The word crouching in the Hebrew fascinated me. And I began to study it. And you know what picture it depicts? It depicts the picture of a predatorial animal in a jungle Good predators, well, I don't think we call it good predators, but <laughs> vicious, ferocious predators like lions, leopards, right? That uh, lurk and wait to pounce. Listen, say pounce. Wait to pounce upon an unsuspecting victim. We did game parks in Botswana about four or five years ago. We went, uh, we were blessed with a holiday by Corpus Crusade Note. And we went on, we were there for three or four days. Every day we did a morning drive and an evening drive. For all the while, we saw every one of the big five except the leopard. And the, the, the guy was explaining to us, of all of them, you probably won't see the leopard, but it could be right next to our, our car. Because it's highly skilled in camouflage, in, in lurking unsuspectingly, upon his victims, okay? So, watch, where it says, um, can you crouch? Now, I'll try and demonstrate, but please, it's not like this. This is my feeble attempt at these things, right? It's like, you know, and leopards go for high ground, eh? He, he, he kept saying to us, watch those little hills there, maybe the trees, you'll see one. And, and they, they do this, and they, you know, they, they're about to, to rise up and to pounce upon their prey. 
What is God saying to Cain? Sin is doing what? Sin is on its crouching haunches. Ready, Cain, to overtake you. God warns a man. If you're not ready, sin's going to master you. But God trying to encourage this guy. God says, its desire is for you, but you must master it. It wants to master you, Cain, but you must master it. This verse is a key and a clue for telling me why Cain's offering was rejected. He sowed seed, never came into harvest because the man was fast asleep. He's fast asleep in that he willfully gave himself over to sensual, unbridled, uncontrolled desire. And God gave him a view of things. When he complains, I am sowing, you don't regard me, you don't regard the offering, no harvest. God says, it's because if you do well, you will be accepted. But you're permitting sin where? What does a door speak of, by the way? Sin is crouching where? At your door, entrance. What does doorway speak of? Access. It tells me, Cain, you are giving this thing legitimate access into your life. Be not deceived. Pornography will kill you. Don't think it innocent. It crouches at your door waiting to kill the purposes of God in your life. Do not be deceived. Uh, adultery will destroy destiny. It crouches at the door to, to pounce on you. And you're doing all the stuff. And you still say, God, I want to be faithful in giving, in sowing and reaping. God says, you are sleeping your harvest. That thing will not work for you. Okay, that thing will not work. And God chides Cain. You know, I love the mercy of God here. When you read this, it's empathetic. A lot of feeling on God's emotional aspect here when he appeals to, 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 to Cain. And you know, Romans, if you, I don't have time to go to Romans just because of the length of service. But Romans says, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, no way. He says, sin shall not be your master. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ. Jesus will walk not after the flesh, but after the, but after the, the spirit. And the text says in Romans, to whomever you healed yourself to, that thing becomes master over you. So I want to exhort the house. Please listen to me very carefully. Do not yield to sin. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You see, we're going to be a very strong financial house that I know, simply because God said it by two prophecies. But God's saying to me, Randolph, prepare the house such that they're going to engage in principles relative to finance, but they must engage upon it. They, they would my image in them reflected in what they do. Right? The, what you give, the image of God must be reflected in your offering. Cain's offering had no divine image in it. Let me just say this. If God cannot see himself in what you give, he's not obliged to respond favorably to what you give. His offering must be reflected in what you give because your image should be reflected there as a reflection of his image within you. Proverbs, look at this text. Proverbs 28 verse 13. A well-known well one, but um, I need to just go over it. Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not 
will not prosper. This is a very frightening verse. He who covers up, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, he, that guy will find compassion. Amen? So if you are covering up sin, concealing sin, and still yet wanting to engage in scriptural principles regarding financial wealth or financial prosperity, or God taking care of your needs, it's not going to work. Because you mar the image of God in what you do. Because what you give should be reflective of you. The word for prosper here is interesting in the, in the Hebrew. It's shalak, shalak, shalak. Difficult to pronounce. It literally means to make advance or progress or to be profitable, to make headway in a thing. And what's going to keep you uh, not making headway is your proclivity to be involved in unrepentant sin. going to kill the principle of sowing and reaping in your life. Okay? It will literally mar it. Now, are you not the righteousness of God in Christ? Yes or no? Are you? Has Jesus not made you righteous? Don't you have the robe of righteousness as the, as the scriptures teach? Yes, we believe in all of these things. Right? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the, the righteousness of God in Him. Right? So His righteousness is imputed unto me. That's true. I accept that. That's a positional state by which I'm right before God. Oh, by the way, Pastor Thomas bringing the series now in Santon on righteousness. I think they've covered about eight or nine sessions. I will encourage you to track it on his website. It's brilliant. Brilliant. But in there, he teaches this, how that although it's been positionally granted unto you as your new status before God, it must be practically expressed and, and worked out. Okay? It must be practically expressed and, and worked out. Now, I want to encourage you um, with this thought as we begin to close. 1 John 2, 29. By the way, righteousness is simply being compliant to God's standards. Right? Compliant. Everyone do this? You sink. Right? If I'm on the earth and God is in heaven, He has standards or principles. I'm on the earth. I mirror what He wants. I become righteous before Him. It's compliance to divine principle, compliance to divine order. Righteousness. Okay? It has very little to do with moral things. That definition of righteousness is part of righteousness, but the es that's the outworking of righteousness. But righteousness is compliant to divine order. I'm going to go to and leave you with some promises. Listen to this. 1 John 2.29 If you know that He is righteous, that God is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now, Everyone say, practice righteousness. This is where I'm getting. Positionally, you are righteous, but it must become practical righteousness. So, uh, tell your neighbor, become a righteous practitioner. Right? And practice. You even use the word practice. Practice it until you master it. Right? Practice it until it becomes second nature to you. Do what's right in God's eyes all the time. Okay? And then, 1 John 3, 7 says the following. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Who's righteous? 
the one who is practicing, in other words, working out the imputed righteousness that you've, that you've already received. So you practice righteousness just as he is, just as he is righteous. Now, the reason why I want you to listen to Pastor Thamo's series, we're going to try and make a CD, hopefully have it available here next week, of all the teachings on one CD. Can't wait, get to the website and start listening. A very important series. You know why? There's a direct correlation in Scripture between the state of righteousness and harvest. And you coming into all of the blessing and the bounty that God has for you. Now to provoke you and to inspire you to, to, to be righteous. Do the right thing all the time under the eye of the Lord. Don't compromise in the least. You know what Jesus said to the Pharisees? I'm thinking about this now in Matthew 23. He said, you tithe, mint, rue, and cumin. Not so. But you have neglected what? You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy, righteousness, and justice. He said, these things you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. The Pharisee mindset thinks like this. Well, I can neglect righteousness, equity, justice, the mercy of God, peace, uh, kindness, all of these things. I'll neglect practically uh, the practical side of being righteous before God, but I'll be faithful with tithes. I'll be faithful with offerings. And Jesus was essentially saying to them, your obedience in tithes, first fruits, and offerings can never ever substitute for your disobedience in other areas. Don't think your money can hoodwink God. Don't think you can live a mess life out there, come and be faithful, yeah, with, with finances, and think God's going to be happy with you simply because you gave the money. No, not going to work. God says, I rejected Cain and his offering because that man was submitting to sin, crouching, giving. He was giving access to his whole house. A door gives access to a house. And be careful. I'm talking to men now. I'm talking to heads of households. Because you are responsible for your house. Be careful what you permit into your house by your lifestyle. You watch your door. Bump someone next to you and say, watch your door. God, you do. This is my, this is my kingdom, my, my wife, my children, right? I'm not going to be the cane submitting to sin, crouching at my door. No, 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 no. As a leader over this house, I have to watch that door. That sin mustn't lurk there waiting to master people. Yeah? And you give legitimacy by your lifestyle. Amen? So I want to encourage you, live righteously and do the right thing. Genesis, quickly. I'm going to speedy Gonzalo now. You better... You better track with me as we close. I'm going to get finished with this text, with this teaching. Genesis 6 verse 9 says, the following, watch. Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a... You know when you expect to, when you read this, these are the generations, you would expect to read some sons. Not so, and he begat, and he begat, not so. But the text says, these are the generations of Noah, and the legacy of Noah is depicted in righteousness. He says, and Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. He was the only one on a whole planet, by the way, because the Bible says the evil intent of every man was evil, not some of the times, but all the time, whole world evil. One man against the tide of evilness on the whole planet. God was about to wipe everybody out, but, everyone say but. Remember I taught you the power of the word but? It says, but Noah found 
grace. Verse, look, look, look at verse uh, 8. Previous verse. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. And let me just say this. Everybody else was killed, but this man was preserved. Why? Righteousness. Tell your neighbor your righteousness will save you. Do the right thing, guys. Do the right thing. When, when everybody else's business is failing, God will make sure yours is fine. Practice. Give practical expression to what the things that God has done in your life. Biblically watch. Wealth is a biblical promise to the righteous. Proverbs 15.6. Quickly. Proverbs 15.6. Great wealth. Come on, let's say it together. One, two, three. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous. But trouble is the income of the wicked. Say it with me, great wealth. Say righteousness. Say great wealth. You see, great wealth is going to come to a righteous community. I'm really, uh, if, if, you know, you, you, you thought we're doing now in this series, Kingdom Economics, talk to us about money. Yeah, I'm talking to you about money. But I'm talking to you about your practical righteousness. Because that is the state that God's going to bless. Amen? That is the condition that, that God is going to bless. And then Proverbs 13, 22, a good man, let's read it together. Proverbs 13, 22, 1, 2, 3. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up ooh, for the righteous. The wealth. So there's a direct correlation between the whole issue of wealth and, and righteousness. Psalm 120, Psalm 112, one of my favorite psalms. You've got to read this with me with gusto and with your whole heart. Psalm 112, verse 3 to 9. Watch. Come on, say it with me. Oh, by the way, let's just read. Let's read the old psalm, a lovely psalm. Psalm 1. 1, 2, 3. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction upon his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And his horn will be exalted in Honor. It's a powerful text. The righteous is preserved, but in this passage, it often says he lends. He, he gives. He's always giving. He's always lending from a position of compliance with heaven's standards. So what he's doing in terms of his lending thoroughly reflects God. And God says, I will preserve that one. Psalm 37 verse 25, my father-in-law's favorite. I used to quote this to him. On his dying bed, I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the, the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for, begging for bread. Psalm 37, verse 21. 
We're almost done. Got two more left. Psalm 20, 37 verse 21 to 26. Let's read it together. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and, and he gives. Right? For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who upholds his hand. I have been young, and I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging. Bread. Verse 26. All day long, what he is, gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Last one, 2 Corinthians. Now we get to Paul's writing on finance. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 from 6 to 10. Let's read this together. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you might have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures for ever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And do what? And increase what harvest? It's not just increase the harvest of your provision that God's going to bless you with things. The harvest that will be also increased to you is how righteous you have been by the administration of your finances in terms of sowing and, and reaping. Say it with me, a harvest of righteousness. It's a harvest of righteousness. And these promises are for you. When I meditated upon this, I said to my spirit, you will practice righteousness. You will do the right thing. Every time you give, you give an expression of your righteousness. The righteous always giving. God will not only supply, give you food and give you seed, but he will increase the, the harvest of your, of your righteousness. It's righteousness that God's going to bless. It's that that God's going to bless. Cain could not come into that blessing. Abel did. Right? And Abel believed God. Let's close with maybe one more. Hebrews 11, 4, I think it is. And then we're going to pray. Only 10 to 11, guys. You're fine. <laughs> By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was how did he get the testimony that this guy is righteous? By what he offered. What you offer testifies about your state. And God responds, yes, to the offering. But when the offering is reflective of the state of the offerer, God blesses that. Come on, read it again. You've got to catch this before you go. Right? No one from this, after this sermon ever again, must give anything 
unless you are not in your gifts. You mustn't give unless it's reflective of the image of God, which is His imputed righteousness in you that you are now practicing and giving vent to. And God says, wow, the giving is reflective of the man. God says, I bless that righteousness. By faith, Abel offered to God a more better sacrifice than Cain, through which, through which, through the offering, he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. And who testifies about his gifts? You know, a lot of people testify about their own gifts, right? I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave. But when God stands up and says, yay, I'm going to testify about what Fanola gave. Yeah, because it's moving my heart in the heavens. Right? When God testifies about you, that's another story. Come on, who would like God to testify? And God says, wow, check him, check her. Right? Righteousness on display. And I will increase your harvest of righteousness. And through faith, though he is dead, yet he still, yet he still speaks. Come on, are you passionate about righteousness? Are you going to be righteous before the Lord? Are you going to do the right thing even in the dark? With no one seeing? Yeah. And watch, brethren, watch how from this point onwards, now when you sow seed reflective of your state, God regards the giver and what is given. All these blessings from the Psalms we've read now on righteousness become yours. Become yours. Stand with me, lift up your hands to the Lord. I know that when we read the text about Cain, that sin is crouching at the door waiting to master you. When we read that, I really felt the warning of God for some of us. And the Lord is saying for many of us, don't take that lightly, guys. Don't take that lightly, my son. You've been dabbling with particular sins. God is saying to you, highlighting to you from the sermon today, that those things are crouching like a predatorial uh, animal, vicious and ferocious, waiting to pounce upon you your life and destiny and mess things up. But God says, you must master it. Don't allow that thing to master you. You must master it. And let me just say this. I, wanna, I don't have time to teach this. But by God's grace, you can. Grace empowers you to overcome sin. It does. It really does. If your heart is right, oh God, I really want to get the victory over this thing that's bugging me, affecting my harvest, causing me to sleep times when I could be harvesting but I have, instead of being a wise son I have now become a shameful son asleep in my harvest no more shamedness we must be wise and I'm going to confer grace upon you as we've taught so lift up your hands to the Lord Heavenly Father we thank you that we have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus what an awesome privilege we have that you have made us righteous before you. And today, God, we lift up our hands and uh, we ask you to help us. Help us, God, to master sin. Help us to overcome proclivities and inclinations that mar your image in us. We thank you that by the grace of God, we are able to, to master it. Your word says that sin shall not be our master. Thanks be to the, our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the victory today we honor you we magnify your name that you have spoken to us in such a fashion today god in jesus name i pray great grace and peace be extended to everyone in the sound of my hearing today 
the Lord give you His grace by which you might overcome sin. The Lord grant to you added strength. The Lord grant to you added grace, empowerment and enablement. His strength in you that will cause you to practice righteousness, to do the right thing. And whenever you give like Abel, your gifts will testify of your righteousness and God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And great wealth, great providence will be your portion. We don't speak these things, loving Father, as well wishes or ardent desires. We believe your word. Your word said it. We simply stand on your word today and we believe. From today onwards, righteousness will be our standard. For the kingdom of God is, first of all, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We will do the right thing before your eyes. Your word says, my eyes are always on the righteous. Oh God, we want to be that that caliber of person. Oh, in Jesus' name, God, right now we receive your grace. We receive your anointing. We receive empowerment of the Holy Ghost. Even now, in Jesus' name, we declare, declare that sin will not master us. In Jesus' name, we will do well, as you said to Cain. If we do well, we will be accepted. We will do well by your power and by your grace. In Jesus' name, I bless you people now with great grace and peace. May the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be your portion, church. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.